Hello, welcome to the Film File. Yes, it's the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hey, here we are. We're back with another exciting episode of The Film File. Of course, I'm Lee Ford. And of course, I'm Andy Meakin. Of course. One of these days, we'll swap names. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? No one would care. (laughs) Yeah, I've, I've been... I've been okay. I mean, still in that positive upswing that we're getting that we spoke about last week. And this week, uh, well, yesterday, it was my birthday. Now, that was the Happy only downer. Birthday. That is the only downer because this is the first birthday in like a decade and a half that I've not celebrated it by having a gathering round of a house with board games, etc. And whilst I've not done that all year yet, and it has been strange, because it's always been a big birthday celebration kind of thing to get me mates around and we all play games together. It lost that magic somehow. It, it's kind of weird, isn't it, having a lockdown birthday? It really is. I mean, I just about missed it last time because I got my weekend in London just around my birthday last year. And it was literally a week later that we were leading towards lockdown. So I got to celebrate it the biggest that I'd done in years last year. And this year is just such a, oh, wow. So this is your birthday. You get up and you just have your breakfast and watch TV like you've been doing for the rest of the rest of the past few months. But that said, it was still great. I mean, get, I got lo- all the messages that you get on Facebook, which from people who had, had kind of like, you know, you know, you've got those people on Facebook who you already interact with like once every you 12 months. <laughs> yeah. Once every year. And you kind of wonder whether they're still actually active on Facebook because you don't see them getting an activity and then they're posting and you realize that they've not posted anything in the past few months on their own feed, but they've jumped on to wish you happy birthday. And that's quite heartwarming. Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I get what you say. I, I've got, got friends who come out of the woodwork just for, just for birthdays. And it's, you know what, it's always appreciated. I had a, a lockdown birthday, as you know. Uh, my partner, she has her birthday, and that was the weekend before lockdown. Because you remember that Mother's Day, I think Mother's Day fell into lockdown? Yes, uh, we went out probably the last time we went into a restaurant in an evening, uh, and that was that was her birthday. And then I think it was on the Monday they announced the lockdown, and and that was it. And so it, it's this year she's got a lockdown birthday, but it's a thing now. It's just it a happens. Thing. <laughs> this is how it goes. Uh, what I did do is just before the weekend, I did my first um, watch party using Disney Plus. Yeah, well, I, I was going to join in, but I didn't. <laughs> well, um, me. It, it went well. There was technical hitches to start with because one of the people couldn't join the group, even though he thought he'd join the group. He wasn't showing in the group. And when he pressed play, it basically just played it for him. How the watch thing works is that when once you're in the watch party, all the icons of all the people who are in it will show up so you can tell that everyone's there. And yeah. the person who ho- who's hosting it presses play and it starts playing. And there's emojis and things that you can throw up on screen to react to stuff. We were also using group chat on Discord to talk to each other. It's it's supposed to be that at any point, anyone can pause it, rewind, et cetera, et cetera, and it'll do it for everyone. So you can stop at certain points and talk about, oh, my God, that bit when they're there. I love this bit. Da, 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 da. And we did it with Kung Pao Enter the Fist. So it was a great one to start with because we could just have a laugh with that one. Technical issues out the way, it went great. And straight away at the end of it, it was like, we're doing this next week. So we're currently narrowed it down. I put four suggestions in. Another guy put five suggestions in. I did two polls, one for my choices, one for his. The top one of each of those polls has now gone head to head. And it's either going to be Independence Day or Starship Troopers. I think it's going to be Starship Troopers. <laughs> Both have been on my list, actually, since I, I've uh, I've spotted them. And one, talking of Disney Plus and stars, that will be my neat thing for this week. And, and talking of this week, what have we got in today's show? Well, where do we start? Of course, Andy will be bringing you the sequence we call the news. We will be doing a deep dive into Martin Scorsese's The Goodfellas. Andy will be reviewing. Well, my main review this week is going to be a micro-budget film that I've got a lot to say about, um, which is called Panda Beirut. And I'll also talk about a few of the other films that are watched this week that were new releases on the streaming services. Excellent. But before all of that, let's get on, because Andy has been trawling the World Wide Web to find you any, well, any snippet of news information for all you moviegoers who might be interested. So stick around for this item that we call the news. 
So, Andy, you've been trolling the web. What have you got for us news-wise? Well, let's start with the situation with regards cinemas, distribution, and how the distributors are approaching this. Because over the past week, Tom and Jerry, which was one of the HBO releases which got a streaming and cinema release at the same time, opened up in US cinemas. To appalling reviews. Yeah, but that didn't stop it getting $14.1 million at the US box office over the weekend, with 50% of the country still shut down, including places like New York that still aren't open. That shows that, A, people don't listen to reviews, and B, this whole thing about Warner Brothers killing cinema by doing this split release on HBO, well, 14.1 million is actually the second biggest opening weekend since lockdown. Wow. Um, Yeah, it it has... It has received some absolutely startlingly terrible reviews. Um, I know nothing about it. I'm not particularly bothered. It's not aimed at me. If we get around to seeing it, so be it. But as you said, for a film to break through like that, that has a, a limited release, in all honesty, still find an audience, it is good news. And it comes back to everything we've been talking about, that people want to sit in a cinema. People do want to share that experience. And I think... You know, it might be Tom and Jerry, but for goodness sake, people want to do it. People want to get back into the cinema experience. They want the escape. They want something different to take them out of, well, particularly out of lockdown at the moment. Uh, New York cinemas are expected to be opening over the next week or so with limited capacity instructions in there, which means that they'll be open in time for later this month, Godzilla versus Kong. And that is going to be the true tester to see what a blockbuster film can do in this new environment. But this bodes well that Tom and Jerry, even though it's on HBO Max, has managed to score quite a good weekend. It shows that people do want to go back to the cinemas. So stop this naysaying, stop this doom-mongering, because it's not happening like the way that you want it to. Paramount, at the same time, have now set a 45-day release window for their upcoming slate, which is a, a significant drop on the old 90-day window that there used to be. For the people who don't understand the terminology, the 90-day window means that it drops in cinemas and then there's 90 days before it can go onto home release. It still allows cinemas six and a half weeks exclusively for titles coming up such as Mission Impossible, Quiet Place 2, Creed 3, etc., etc. And at the same time, Bob Shapek of Disney has stated that it's unlikely that they will move back to the old release window system in future as customer expectation has altered so much. But they're still keen to support the theatrical distribution wherever they can so i imagine that we will continue to see things like we've got this weekend with raya coming out on disney plus and cinemas where available we'll still see that and they'll probably still adopt the premium access release where it's like 20 quid to rent it uh, for a premium access on disney plus it's interesting that you say uh audience expectations anymore and i think that's a it's a big part of it because no matter what with everything that's gone off, I think audience expectation is something that we have to be very aware of, that people want their films in different mediums. And even yeah. if you've been to the cinema, there's nothing better than than a week later talking about it with your mates and going, you know what? We really want to watch this again right now. Let's group watch it on Disney+. Plus. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it gives you the best of both worlds. I don't think that cinemas will return to the heady heights that they were in before lockdown. I don't think that we'll see that kind of spiking for a good few years. But I don't think that this is the death of cinemas at all. This is just a whole no. new way. And cinemas just need to, as we said last year, cinemas need to adapt to not just focus on the blockbusters, but to focus on film in general. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Totally with you. Um, Ryan Gosling is going to star in The Actor, which is an adaptation of a novel called Memory by Donald Westlake. Oh, the great Donald Westlake. Great writer. I've never read any of his stuff. Good mystery writer. Great mystery writer. Have you read Memory? I haven't. It's not one of the ones I haven't read, but I I do do like Donald Westlake a lot. uh, This story focuses on a character named Paul Cole, who has a near-death experience and is hospitalised in the 50s. He then recovers, dealing with damaged memory, seeking to find some semblance of a life as he puts together what memories he can in an attempt to find who he truly is. Sounds interesting. Gosling, always, always a draw. He's one of those names that, whilst I don't immediately think he's one of my favourite actors, I realise that whenever he's in a film, I'm very much engaged with it. So 
he is surreptitiously led his way into being one of my favourite actors without me noticing. You know, uh, a couple of weeks back, I think it was probably before Christmas, I talked about having seen First Man for the first time, uh, watched it on Netflix, yeah. which had Ryan Gosling in. You know, that's one film. And, and a few come along every now and then, but that's one of those films that has absolutely stuck with me. Yes. For all the right reasons. Uh, and, and, and in some way down to Ryan Gosling's performance in it, but it's one of those films that stuck with me. I like Ryan Gosling I, uh, in most things that I've seen him in. I think he can turn his, uh, from high drama to, to comedy, as we saw with uh, uh, the Shane Black movie. So, I mean, yeah, I'm interested. Colour me interested. I've got a bit of news. What have you got? Hugh Grant and Sophia Lillis have been added to the cast of Dungeons & Dragons. Yes. So this is basically Hugh Grant is doing what Jeremy Irons uh, signed up for all those years ago on the first Dungeons & Dragons movie in playing the villain of the tale. Hugh Grant, I mean, he's had a good good few years, Hugh Grant. He's really like given himself a new, a new energy in films, playing roles that are so diverse from what he used to play. So I'm, I'm actually quite excited to see him play in what is effectively a pantomime tabletop role-playing game story. Uh, it puts him alongside Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez and Justice Smith and Reggie Jean Page, who were already cast, and Sophia Lilly, who has been cast alongside him. We don't know anything about the story. We don't know any details. We don't know any details of characters at this point in time. But those who know Dungeons & Dragons as a framework know that it can give you any kind of fantasy adventure stories within that kind of framework. I'm kind of excited. You're excited. I mean, uh, Sophia Lillis was was fantastic in in both it films, even the really poor second one. She was the the highlight in both of those. And the thing about Hugh Grant is, and I, and I read this recently that that he said that when he was doing all the Richard Curtis films and he was doing all the romantic comedies, uh, that wasn't him. You know, he's a bit sweary in real life. He's a he's a bit more um, he's a bit more fully rounded than that <laughs> character. And and that's kind of the the Hugh Grant that he ended up playing, and the the characters he's playing now he plays because he's a, he's a he's a damn decent actor and a great character actor as well. Matt Damon and Luke Hemsworth have been spied on the set of Thor: Love and Thunder. Are they playing actors this time? I wonder. Uh, it looks like they are playing the same actors that they portrayed last time. With Sam Neill is dressed up as Odin in what appears to be a reenactment of the events of Ragnarok, specifically the arrival and attack of Hella, who is played in this reenactment by Melissa McCarthy. I saw this and I, I sent you a message going, did you hear that Melissa McCarthy is in uh, Thor, uh, Thor Love and Thunder? <laughs> when I first read this news, I was like, oh, Melissa McCarthy's in Thor Love oh, Actually, that is so Taika Waititi. <laughs> yes. I think it can work. It is so perfectly, it's perfectly miscast for a reenaction. Of yeah. that moment. And I think that's what makes it work so brilliant. It's a touch of genius. I'm more excited to see this reenactment than seeing the rest of the film. Is that wrong? <laughs> Fantastic. I didn't realise that was what she was playing, but uh, I, I think that's so, so good. <laughs> well, in related Marvel news, so last week we spoke about the three fake titles for Spider-Man. We did. We spoke about, yeah, we suspected that there'll be a proper title getting announced soon. Little did we know, that it was actually going to go live within two hours of us recording the episode. And that title is? That title is No Way Home. So, of course, home is in there. Yeah. How they revealed it. Did you see the little tease trailer where they revealed it? No, I didn't. It's Tom Holland, Zendaya and Jacob Batalon leaving John Watts' office, having discovered they've been fed fake titles because Tom is useless at keeping secrets. <laughs> and the, te the tease ends with them walking past a whiteboard of ideas of like different titles and scribbles out and can't use that. It's already been done. No, this is already a film, maybe possible. And fans are now looking at that whiteboard and trying to dissect it to see if there's any clues as to what's going to happen in the film in there. I personally don't think there is. I think it's a load of red herrings, but it was a great little reveal trailer, just playing on the whole Tom Holland cannot be trusted approach. Absolutely brilliant. Um, you remember that I mentioned the colour coding last week? Yes. We thought it might be the Sinister Six. Yes. Well, now that we know that there's only three different colours, some people have realised that the reveal of them in order, if you place it, it's purple, green, and then silver. Sort of like someone's hat over a green face on a silver glider. 
is a goblin going to appear in this film? Mm-hmm. You know what? That's the thing about fan speculation. And, and I know we said, uh, we'll talk about One Division later, but the producers have said that fans will be disappointed because they speculated so much as to what they think the ending is going to be. Of course, they're going to be disappointed. That's what fan speculation gets you. Talking of speculation, um, Neil Blomkamp says he's writing District 10. I was a big fan of District 9, saw it again recently, and it still still really holds up. Yep, him, Charlotte Copley, and Terry Thatchell have all sat around, and they're starting to draft up the story idea for where District 10 would be and what the script will be, and plans are to get this going into production ASAP. Uh, yeah, I, I was a big fan of District 9. I thought it, it was a very intelligent sci-fi. It was that, it was that, what we always say is great sci-fi in that it tackles social issues, but in a fantastical kind of setting. I'm very excited to see it. I thought that the last about the last act of District 9 went a bit too much into generic sci-fi. Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. Mecha action approach. But I left that film thinking I'd like to see more of it. And now, a decade later, we might get to see it. Have you heard um, about Terminator being rebooted as an anime series uh, for Netflix? I've heard rumours of it. Um, I've not looked into the details, but I know that when I, when I saw it reported, I saw all the people commenting it and everyone's basically gone, oh, haven't we had enough Terminator already? And I think that's the problem that it's now got, that even if this anime is absolutely fantastic, it's got a battle to convince people that there can be something fresh done with Terminator because it's a tainted franchise now, let's be honest. Well, apparently it's going to be a fresh spin on the Killer Cyborg story. It's being written by Matson Tomlin, who's written the Batman film with Matt Reeves. So maybe it's time that, that, and it's a bit like Star Wars, if you think outside of the box with Terminator, then you're going to find something different and maybe something interesting. So again, we'll, we won't, decry it right now we'll just wait and see and see what happens um speaking on new versions of old franchises how about jj abrams producing a new superman movie okay this is where we open the door into the uh film file now becomes a controversy file where certain speculation and again let's be honest it is purely speculation because he's teaming it with Tennessee Coates, then we're going to get a black Superman. Yeah, I mean, uh, Coates worked on... He's worked for Marvel previously with comics. He gave a great run on Captain America. And his run on Black Panther is considered largely influential to the making of the film. Well, yeah, I, I, I was one of my neat things the other week. There's no cast or story speculation known, but we do know that Cavill has said that he would he'd be happy to return to the role. But speculation is that this will be an Elseworlds alternate take on Superman, likely inspired by the Calvin Ellis version of the hero from Final Crisis, uh, which, for those who don't know, is a black Superman. So Michael Bean Jordan has been all over saying that he would love to play Superman. So people have started to connect the dots. And of course, fans being fans, uh, Snoop has got a Snoop. You've got to have some kind of outrage <laughs> at this stage. So it could go either way. It could be JJ's always wanted to do Superman. There was his flyby project, which which failed. Yeah. There's the idea that is it going to be a black actor playing Clark Kent? So does that make the rest of the cast black? Is it be interesting to see Mar and Pa Kent? Are they black or are they white? Is Lois black? Is Luther black? So uh, there's that route. As you said, it could be an Elseworlds project. And uh, it's a completely new, different Superman. Um, I've, I've got thoughts on this, as I'm sure everybody else has, but I'll start with you. What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are that I'd be happy with either take, to be honest with you. I really want Cavill to be given a chance to play Superman how he should be allowed to play Superman. I want Cavill to be my Superman. But in the meantime, I would be. Ha- I know that DC are approaching this uh, using the multiverse aspects themselves, and they're happy to do alternate takes, like we've got, Patterson's Batman. Yeah, I've got the Joker. I'd be interested to see this as as a way for them to see whether there's actually any momentum in a Superman movie if you change the character and do something different with it. I'm, I'm open to it. I would rather it be a new Superman than a Clark Kent. I, and there's a lot you could do. I mean, there's an awful lot you could do with, with a black Clark Kent. Uh, and that changes the, the whole dynamic of it. But and this is where you go down the down the road where people will lay accusations of racism at you because you you don't see it. I, to me, that Clark Kent is a very very specific character, as is James Bond, as is uh, the Black Panther, 
as is Shang Chai. I wouldn't want to see a Western actor play Shang Chai. Has to be an Asian actor. I would rather they do something with the mythos of Superman than open it up just to for diversity for diversity's sake uh, and cast a black actor playing the Superman that is Kal-El, Clark Kent. When this news dropped, as expected, because whenever any news of any DC films get greenlit, guess who cropped out the woodwork to start making it all about him again? Oh, I can see us opening a door into Ray Fisher territory. Yes, Ray Fisher tweeted out that, again, he's doing his accusations about Hamada and he's convinced that them dropping this news of this potential black Superman, even though it's not been dropped as news of a black Superman, it's been dropped as JJ is making a movie and it's the fans who've created this speculation. He says that it's DC and Warners who are doing this to show diversity as a way to offset what they did to him and to distract against his claims against Hamada. You know, because a film studio announcing that they're making films is just a cover-up. How dare a film studio make films when they've, when they've not dealt with Hamada? Oh, on that subject, they have dealt with Hamada. Because you know those investigators that um, Fisher used the recording of yes. to prove that he was he was being cooperative and they were so trustworthy and like oh these people should be listened to because they were really trustworthy well he now says they're not trustworthy because guess what they've said that hamada didn't interfere at all and neither did a federal judge who investigated these claims so how's that working out for you fisher oh i know how it's working out he's now changing his story to claim that hamada tried to interfere but fisher stopped him before he could that's not what you said in that two-page statement last year, mate. <laughs> Stop changing your story. That's a Trump kind of thing. Booyah! It just seems to me that you've got to put up or shut up at some time because it's all speculative or it's all hearsay in the things that he's done. There's been a, a story that's going out today about racism on the Justice League set. I understand that he's he, he, he got kicked onto the touchline out of the game in the Joss Whedon version. And there may have been issues as, as as been revealed with Joss Whedon. And, you know, if he's brought that to light, fantastic. But he's he's got to start showing some evidence, hasn't he? Yeah. It's it's all it's all talking around issues, but there's nothing ever concrete. And the, the, the further you go on with this, or the further he goes on with this, should I say, is more and more it's it's gonna become less believable and people are going to start figuring out that it, it, it's either not the truth, so put up or shut up now. His whole issue was with how Joss uh, had gone and the investigation had remedial action getting taken. And we saw, even though it's not being con like confirmed that it was to do with it, Joss basically lost ownership of a show that he conceived that it was in production. He created, yeah. Often you get, a, you get somebody walking away from their own show. Yeah, and Joss has gone very quiet since and not said anything. So action got took on what Fisher raised. So his complaints were valid at the start, but it's all these later complaints about Hamada that are getting out of hand. And it's just showing that Fisher is the kind of person who, if he doesn't get 100% his own way, he's just going to keep spitting his dummy out and throwing toys out the front. I said off air before, and I'm going to say it here. I'm convinced that if he manages to get his way with Hamada, he'll hear that I've been dissing him on this podcast <laughs> and then he'll come after me. So... Bring it, Fisher. Bring it. Um, let's 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 relax my heart levels. Let's keep my blood pressure down. Because let's let's talk about something positive. And uh, Zack Snyder, you and Zack now are on speaking terms. In fact, uh, a dinner date has been arranged, and uh, <laughs> you'll see them both in public to discuss said stories. Now, this week, Zack has confirmed the the Snyder cut will end on a cliffhanger, which is what we knew all along. We suspected this right from day one. But at the same time, we also got a trailer for a film that we've been looking forward to, Army of the Dead. And, don't know about you, but I was blown away by it. It looks pretty darn good. It looks like everything we'd hoped it would be. It looks spectacular. Yep. It, it's got a ton of zombie action. It's got a ton of action. I can't wait for it to land. And I've, I've been looking forward for this since it got announced. A heist movie. The heist elements are in there. You can see it. I, I'm, I'm well and truly on board for it. And can't wait for it to land on Netflix. So um, it's it's good news on that aspect. Um, more good news. Uh, remember that Brett Ratner Millie Vanilli project that we mentioned last week? We did mention it last week. And then as soon as we mentioned it, well, you tell us. <laughs> Millennium Media have pulled out of their involvement in the project. They've backed away from it because the backlash at Brett Ratner going back, getting a job again, 
after all the allegations brought against him a few years ago, has scared them away. Now, Ratner's publicists have said that the film has still secured full financing via a group of private equity investors. What that means, no one knows. So there's still a chance that it'll get made, but it makes it more difficult for it to get a distribution release if it's not got a studio behind it and it's just a private investment. The film, as we know, will explore the rise and fall of the lip-syncing musicians, and we don't really need this film. But we don't really need Brett Ratner coming back either, so it's a it's a perfect combination. Zach Braff has got a new film in the works called A Good Person. I loved his first film. I thought Garden State was fantastic. Oh, Garden State is an amazing film. That was a great out-the-gate example of what you can do. And his work on he directed a few episodes of TV shows and he, he did one of the episodes of Ted Lasso as well. Um, he's a really solid director who's got a handle on characters that he directs. So I'm intrigued with this. If the film will focus on Alison, whose life falls apart after a fatal accident she was involved in, the relationship she forms with her would-be father-in-law helps her found a reason to keep on living. Braff is writing and directing with Morgan Freeman starring and, of course, Florence Pugh is going to star as Alison. Another thing that we touched on last week was Gordon Hemingway and the Realm of Cthulhu, who the Spike Lee produced project for, for Netflix, which now looks to be reuniting Spike with one of the cast from The Five Bloods and no stranger to Cthulhu, who, Jonathan Majors, who was also in Lovecraft Country. Yeah, I noticed that. I saw that after we, uh, again, we talked about it last week. Now, the film is not adapted from anything that Lovecraft wrote, but it is clearly inspired by it and is delving into the mythos, like many other films and stories have done since. And like I said last week, it's set in 1928 in East Africa and sees Majors play Hemingway as he battles ancient evil, trying to rescue the country's kidnapped regent. Direction's going to be handled by Stefan Bristol, who gave us See You Yesterday. Oh, didn't see that. Netflix have been busy little beavers over this past week because they've also picked up the Colin Firth-led World War II movie called Mincemeat for $15 million. Wow. It's set in 1943 and follows the true story of intelligence officers Montague, played by Firth, and Cholmondley, played by Matthew McFadden, who conjured an inspired and very improbable disinformation strategy centred on the secrets of a man that the Germans would not expect because he was dead. And this disinformation that they created helped turn to the tide of the war. I, it's great that we can talk about that without having to go, spoilers. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, it, it, it happened, so let's be honest. Um, and finally on the Netflix news, George R.R. R. Martin's story Sand Kings is being picked up by Netflix and none other than Pirates of the Caribbean helmet Gore Verbinski is set to direct it. Oh, that's good. He, he did go a bit quiet. He did do that very strange horror film, which name the name escapes me right now, came out a couple of years ago. Uh, I, I think he's a very a good, again, one of those great visual directors that comes from a commercials background, a bit like uh, your mate Zach. Uh, but I always think that he, he, he does... He does fail a little bit as a storyteller, but a great visualist. As Verbinski has said himself when speaking with Collider over this past week, one of the screenplays is based on George R.R. R. Martin's story called Sand Kings, which is this brilliant little twisted short story that I love. And I'm working with a great writer, Dennis Kelly, who wrote the original Utopia. The British original series is brilliant. And Dennis is doing the adaptation. So I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, the story of Sand Kings, it's a sci-fi horror novelette that was released by the famous author who gave us, in case you didn't recognise the name George R.R. R. Martin, which, what rock have you been under? Something called Game of Thrones oh, that was one of his. A few years. We're so over Game of Thrones now. Well, this is one of his early 1979 short stories. So it, it's interesting. It's an interesting project and decent names behind it. I've got a couple of little quick ones for you, as they say, which should be uh, accompanied by a carry-on style yak-yak from Sid, Sid James. <laughs> Jodie Comer is in early talks to join Ridley Scott in his Napoleon Bonaparte film. And there is rumour of a Passenger 57 sequel. Uh, whether it's starring Wesley Snipes, who knows? But there are rumours that one is in production right now. I didn't see Passenger 57 uh, because I hadn't seen the first 56 films. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and on that bad pun, that rounds up the news. So hopefully you're enjoying the show and you're still with us. And if you're enjoying it that much, then please hit the subscribe button and um, become a regular listener to the film file. And as well as becoming a regular listener, please 
just take two minutes out of your day and leave a review because boy do we love reading reviews especially good ones if you want to get in touch with us you can do so at over on twitter at filmfile uk on instagram filmfile uk or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk there's no reason to not drop us a line okay so this week we are doing our regular deep dive last week we did superman this week we're doing the 1990 martin scorsese classic and when we use the word classic it doesn't get any classier than this good fellas never ran on your friends and always keep your mouth shut as far back as i can remember i always wanted to be a gangster hi mom what do you think you look like a gangster I know By the time I grew up, there was 30 billion a year in cargo moving through Idlewild Airport. And believe me, we tried to steal every bit of it. What do you do? I'm in construction. He's not Jewish. Mazel tov. For most of the guys, killings got to be accepted. Hey, Henry, here's an arm. Very funny, guys. Here's a leg. Here's a wing. <laughs> what do you like, the leg or the wing? to live any other way was nuts <laughs> and we were treated like movie stars with muscle we had it all just for the asking it's gonna be a good summer <laughs> it was a glorious time in a world that's powered by violence on the streets where the violent have power a new generation carries on an old tradition Starring Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, the story of Henry Hill and his life in the mob, covering his relationship with his wife, Karen, and his mob partners, Jimmy Conway and Tommy DeVito. And this is the epitome of the great Italian-American crime syndicate film. Uh, often imitated, never bettered, and even by Scorsese himself, I don't think he's ever improved upon this, even though he's made some worthy films since then. Andy. I can't believe that it came out in 1990 for a start. And uh, I, I went to the cinema to see it. And, and it's a long movie. It's just short of, um, of three hours. But it never in any moment of that film does it feel dull. Does it feel padded? Doesn't it feel like it's moving and building to a satisfactory conclusion? I know it's been talked about as being one of the greatest crime films of all time. Up there with The Godfather. But in my honest opinion, it surpasses that. It surpasses that for a whole multitude of reasons that we will talk about today. But it, it's a film that you said if it's on, you just have to watch it. Yeah, I mean, this is possibly my most rewatched Martin Scorsese film of all time. Uh, I was 17 when it got released, just about to turn 18. And I managed to sneak in to see this when it was uh, released, despite the fact it was an 18. I, I looked quite old for my age. Um, <laughs> it, but, wow, what a film. It took the style of his earlier films, his, you know, his mean streets kind of approach, where he was melding you know street-level crime with mobster kind of aesthetics and his use of music. And it crafted the pinnacle of that theme of film that he did. This, like you say, it's something that's been imitated so many times, including by Scorsese himself, but never bettered. And yeah, I think the closest that he's come to getting the level of cool and the, the whole buzz and energy of this film was when he gave us Wolf of Wall Street, which is basically Goodfellas with stock market. But one absolute belter of a film. Once it's on, and you'll see that I've got the Blu-ray, I'll happily, re I've got the DVD, I've got the old like flip disc DVD from when it first came out. Um, I will happily rewatch it. And whilst there's some films that you'll rewatch and rewatch, and you'll get to a point that when you put it on, it's kind of background noise while you're doing other things. You get distracted, you do, you, you'll pick up a book and read while you're doing it. As soon as this starts with that opening scene of them in the car, the bumps coming from the truck, and then it does the flash pan straight into his face as he says, Ever since I was young, I always wanted to be a gangster. And that's it. I'm hooked. I'm in. Even though I know every beat of the film, every moment of the film, I'm stuck 
with those characters and I don't look away from the screen. And it was a pleasure going back to it this past weekend and revisiting it once more and really appreciating because there's revisiting it for fun. But then when I said that we wanted to do this for the show, it was like, well, I'm going to try and see if I could be critical about it. I'm going to try and dissect it. And it's, it's just such a great film. I can't think of a fault from it. I looked to see if there was anything that stood out as a flaw and I couldn't see any flaws throughout my whole watching of it. It's, it's an absolutely film. epic film, isn't it? And, it, you know, I, I failed to mention, while talking about great performances, um, De Niro, Liotta and Pesci, but Lorraine Bracco as as, as Karen, uh, the wife figure, and, and, and Paul Savino. The fact that it's set between 1955 and 1980, so you've got this 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 change of styles and the music accompanies that and, and the image of the film changes uh, to take it into, into, into the 80s. There, for me, is is a filmmaker working at the top of his game. Uh, I mean, up until that point, he'd had such a, a so many home runs: Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, um, King of New York, uh, and then this. But to some degree, everything that sort of followed this almost paled by comparison to Goodfellas. I mean, we said before we came on, we talked how good Casino is, but it's not as good as Goodfellas. We talked about Gangs of New York, but it's not as good as Goodfellas. Uh, to, to, to some extent, this is the film which which will be forever Scorsese's signature. Yes. Uh, the, the music, the, the use of music in this film and his love of the Rolling Stones is uh, all over this film. But it's everything from the, the use of Then He Kissed Me by the Crystals in one of the most iconic moments of the film. Uh, which I'll talk about a bit more when we talk about the cinematography, right through to the use of the coda of Layla as all the bodies are being found. And it's just, it's not just using music just to set the era that it's set in. It's using music as part of the character of the film and every bit of music, the same as you see with directors such as James Gunn and Edgar Wright, that they use pop tunes and tunes of an era as part of the story. And it's, this that Scorsese set the bar level for, he every bit of music doesn't feel like it's been shoehorned in. It feels a natural part of what's happening at that point of the film. Absolutely, absolutely caught up with it. And as soon as I finished watching it, I went straight onto my computer and started up listening to the soundtrack because I was back in that world. You've said about the performances, and like you say, you know, uh, Jimmy Conway played by De Niro, Tommy played by Pesci. Brilliant performances. Liotta has never been better than he was no, in this I agree. film. I totally agree. Henry Hill. He was absolutely convincing. And it, the film never lets you forget that these are inherently bad people. But you still find yourself rooting for them. You still want them to succeed in their criminal acts. And that's the masterful element of this story. And it's a true story. And that's what makes it stand out more. But like you said... People always talk about the performances in this, but they kind of forget how great Lorraine Bracco is as Karen Hill. She is absolutely fiery. She is dominating in scenes and she is an essential presence throughout because she is the linchpin of an almost normality that Henry Hill was hanging on to whilst his life was devolving around him. You can't go and talk about Goodfellas without talking about so many different iconic scenes. Uh, um, There's the entering of the club the, the the one long take which is absolutely superb you've got the uh um so you think i'm funny joe pesci there are so many classic moments that to come out of one film is amazing you know you'd expect those to come out of several films uh, and you can go on and on you talk about the music you talk about the design of the film you talk about the sense of of threat that runs all the way through the story uh, just just it's everything about it is is why the term classic was in, invented for it is one of those utterly utterly quotable films there's there's not anybody who's is a film fan who can't quote some part of goodfellas you know there's the fact that the ease of the characters and the way they relate to each other is so is is so beautiful and and that's down to the fact that uh, scorsese in in rehearsals had lived a lot of the scenes and wrote wrote them into the script so you got that that sense of spontaneity. These are actors working at the top of their game, along with a director working at the, the top of his game. And you, without this this film, 
you wouldn't have got a series like The Sopranos. And of course, there were so many cast members who made it into The, the Sopranos. Yeah. But it, it, it birthed other films and it's so it's so referenced. Uh, the combination of direction from Scorsese with cinematography by Michael Bailhouse gave us some beautifully shot scenes. The nighttime scenes are always lit in what looks like a natural way, so it doesn't look like it's artificially lit. But you never fail to be able to see the detail in it. It's so well shot. And like you say, that Copacabana scene, the single take shot, which came about through necessity. Initially, they wanted to film just going in through the main doors and straight in there, but they weren't allowed to film the front of the Copa. And so they went, well, let's go in through the back and do a single take. And you watch it. And we've said before on a few other things when we've spoken about single takes that we do love a good single take. It's something that there's, there's the technical achievement behind it, but it's also, it really draws you into the moment. And this is a perfect single take. There's so much activity going on. When it goes through the kitchens, there's so much that must have been choreographed to perfection to get that to flow like it did. But never once do you feel that there's a cameraman following them because you don't get the judder that you get quite frequently when you're following someone with a camera. It is smooth. It is fluid. There's no cuts. It is straight from the outside, through all the back passages, round the kitchens, out into the main hall, to the front, to the stage, table down, sat down, and that's when it goes static and it focuses on them. Absolutely brilliant. If I tried doing that, I'd still be doing it now. I'd still be <laughs> going for it on, on take 4,973. It shows how meticulous Scorsese could be and the fact that they had to do this because they couldn't go with their initial plan of just going in through the front doors. What an achievement to make the most memorable moment out of a film from something that you were forced to do out of necessity. And you know what? The reason it really does work is because it's integral to the story. It's not because it's a flashy, flashy setup. Yeah. It works because it works in tandem with the rest of the story and the world that that character and, you know, the, that character having to come through the back door, the character having to go through the kitchens and almost that descent into hell. It, it works because it's it's so thematic of the rest of the film. Yeah, that the whole sequence, like you say, it's it's part of it, and it, it's it is romancing of Karen that moment. And by the end of that whole walkthrough and sitting down at the table, we are as whirled in the head, and we are as enthralled and captivated by the presence that he has in this society around them that we can understand how she just looks at him, going. What is it you do? And you can understand how she was just enraptured by him from that moment because we are as well. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I've just double checked and it was eight takes it took to shoot it. What a shot. And what a film. And it's it's one of those films where, uh, as you said very early on, you are caught up in this this incredible world of, of violence and Scorsese never shies away from that. And you're caught up with characters who... You would never want to meet or even be in that world if you're a sensible, moralistic human being. But you're sharing over two hours of just just superb filmmaking and uh, superb characters. It is and deserves to be recognised as, as one of the greatest films ever made. And it's not often it's not often you can say that. This is Scorsese's absolute triumph of a film. It's because of films such as Goodfellas that when Scorsese says a piece that causes controversy, like, is it cinema, uh, et cetera, that you just go, you know what? Even if I don't agree entirely with you, you deserve to have a voice. He has shown his passion for films through making such a momentous film. So this is why Scorsese is possibly the biggest influence on film of our generation. Uh, here, here. I second that all the way through. So there you go. That's good, fellas. We'll take another deep dive next week. But in the meantime, because I've been, well, slightly lazy, Andy's got some reviews for you. He's had an opportunity, for some reason I haven't, to watch as much as possible and let you know his thoughts across the streaming platform. So, Andy, what have you got for us this week? So my main review this week is a film by a writer-director called Evan Kidd, and it's called Panda Burrit. These are the type of moments that I live for. Chilling with my cousin Marcus, talking about our... P- you sure, man? Come on. Hey, like you mean it. 
these are the type of moments that I live for. Yes. Chilling with my cousin Marcus talking about our passions. Told him in order to start that you gotta take action. Watch out for the programs to make you all passive. United we stand, together they fall. Always shoot for the stars, so that's why I stand tall. Yes. They wanna dim your light down when they know you got glow. And they dap you up in public just to do it for show. <laughs> They're too busy playing games when I wanna own some teams getting paid just to watch them from the press box. I'm still humble enough to put some work in the field. Shit is real. People getting murked over meals. Like meals when you eat. Mm, I'm following you. And then meals like money, you know? <laughs> Work a couple nine to fives just to pay all my bills, but I'm still my own boss because I stay on my shit. Never let a hater tell you you should settle and quit. Just let it all propel you to the top, homie, and know that you're not alone. So this is Evan Kidd's second feature after Son of Clowns, and it's only a short film, just over an hour long. Panda Bear, it sees Damien Elliott Bynum, a.k.a. Camus Leonardo, a rapper who is struggling to regain his inspiration for not only his art, but his day job and life in general. Oh, and he's also followed at times by an imaginary panda. However, what initially looks like just a melancholy is revealed to be depression brought about by grief after the loss of a, the love of his life a year earlier. Oh, and did I mention? that he's being followed by an imaginary panda. The significance of this imaginary panda that seems very out of place and very surreal at the start of the film starts to become integral to the journey of Camus over the short running time. Now, this is a film that I found easy to connect with on quite a few levels. There's the exploration of grief and loss, which is something that most of us can relate to in one way or the other. The lead role is played in a very natural, subdued and melancholic manner that feels real. It doesn't feel forced. It feels believable. And the believability of that role is one of the biggest strengths of the film. It helps us overlook the somewhat weaker cast members around him at times in support roles. It's not to say they're bad. And indeed, there's one in particular, that of a farmer later on in the film, played by Eric Hartley, that really stands tall. The rest of the cast are generally OK, because this is a micro-budget film. It cost $500 to make. But what impressed me out of the gate on this film was the confidence in cinematography shown. Now, the director, Evan Kidd, did everything. He wrote it, he directed it, he was responsible for camera work. It's all his work. And he uses a really good selection of framing and shot setups, avoiding the usual approach that small indie films tend to adopt, where they just dump a camera down and people act in front of it. He uses creative positioning of the camera for the best impact of the mood of each scene. There's subtle, surreal humour in there, largely involving the panda, which is well-placed and never feels like it's contrasting with the themes of the film. Some interesting creative choices help to highlight that the panda isn't real. The choice to have the panda not speak, but it makes curious squeak mumbles, with the translation then shown in subtitles, puts its words in our heads so that we can relate to how the panda is in Camus's head. But most of all, this is a film that taps into the surreality of grief itself. The world feels unreal when you're locked in grief and nothing can break you out of it. And it's how our experiences with grief can sometimes disconnect us from our own reality, sometimes requiring that outside presence, real or unreal, to move us forward once more. Evan Kidd shows remarkable promise as a creative force and is certainly going to be a name that I'm going to be looking out for in future. You do wonder after watching it what you could achieve with a larger budget. I need to point out that this film is not available as of yet in the UK. It's on Amazon Prime in the US and he's looking to get a distribution in the UK later in the year. But in the meantime, if anyone wants to track this down for a total of a five dollar donation to his Patreon account, we'll put the link in the description. But it's patreon.com slash Mr. Evan Kidd. That will get you access to this film and also his first film, Son of Clowns. Five dollars it's about £3.70 at the moment. I think this is an interesting short film that showcases fresh upcoming talent in quite a good way. Excellent. So uh, if you want to watch that film, then uh, just check in the descriptions this week and we'll be able to uh, uh, point you in the right direction. So quickly, Andy, anything you want to uh, mention before we get on to... One uh, division. So over the mainstreaming platforms over the past week, we've had three films that have caught my eye and I've watched and I've got some feedback on. First of all, Escape from Pretoria, which sees Daniel Radcliffe shining once more in a real life tale about a group of ANC activists during apartheid in South Africa who plans to escape from the prison they were sentenced to. 
It's nail-biting, it's gripping, and the only real downside comes from the rather uneven accents of the cast as they struggle to get a South African accent. Well recommended, that's on Amazon Prime, Escape from Pretoria. Daniel Radcliffe once again showing that he's more than just Harry Potter. On Netflix, we mentioned it last week, Capone. Now there's something interesting in this film. The approach of this film, which is a deconstruction of a figure who's usually represented on film in a menacing way, but instead was shown Al Capone's declining era of ill physical and mental health. And Josh Trank does direct the hell out of it. Man, he knows how to get a, get a frame in. He knows how to shoot. But the film doesn't serve any purpose as a story. And Tom Hardy once again fails to convince me that he's anything more than a very average actor who can do silly voices. And finally, you've got The People versus Billy Holiday, which tells the true story of the attempts to prosecute singer Billy Holiday under drugs charges as a way to silence her after the strong strange fruit sparked controversy because it was all about lynchings. The film has a great award-winning central role to it, but that's about it. The rest of it is bland, standard biopic territory. All the things that are wrong with biopics are all in this film, and it drags its heels for a plodding round about two hours runtime that it really, really didn't need. There's documentaries about Billie Holiday's experiences and the investigation into her out there, which are far better to watch. People versus Billie Holiday, guess what? It's a Sky original. Well, that's if there was ever a good reason to move on, the term Sky original makes you want to move on. That's disappointing because I quite like the sound of that Billie Holiday film. Okay, so you'll know over the last few weeks that we have uh, been reviewing each episode of One Division, and we're now up to episode eight. And with episode eight came a lot of surprises. So this was the first episode to really break away from from the from the TV setup when it dealt with Wanda. Yes, we'd we'd been out of the TV scenarios when we're in the real world for us, for one of a better term. But when we're dealing with Wanda, this was the first episode that didn't feel like it was. A, uh, a sitcom and then it got meta so the uh, the episode opened in Salem Massachusetts in 1693 and we saw Agatha basically battling a group of other witches to what looked like seize power uh, and become even more powerful including killing her own mother uh, we then caught up with Wanda and it was well. It was basically what what comics do all the time. It was an origin issue, wasn't it? Yes. If it was, if there was any aspect of TV sitcoms that was in here, it was a clip show. Yeah. It was yeah. flashbacks. Use it like as a clip show. The flashbacks were scenes that we've not seen before from throughout the history of Wonder. However, they are all things that we we already know kind of about. We've heard of. It was just it, seeing them portrayed out and it was more as an exploration of the heart and soul of Wanda and re- working out exactly why she created this artificial community that she's in because she has gone through trauma after trauma after trauma and then she broke and that's what it's all about is the deconstruction of her grief throughout yeah. this episode interestingly it also flipped one of the earlier reveals on its head because we had the earlier reveal of her, apparently, according to the video footage, seeking out Vision's corpse and blowing out windows. And then we're led to believe that that's where she got Vision that she created inside. However, we now find out that the Vision that she created, she's created from scratch because the corpse of Vision we get to see in the mid credit stinger has been reassembled by S.W.O.R.D. itself to give us White Vision, who is going to be sent in to stop Wanda. So which which makes you think there's going to be a, a big battle with uh, between two visions? That's the way I'm reading it. Who knows? Paul Bettany has been saying for the past few weeks that he got to work with an actor that he's always wanted to work with and he's always had such huge respect for. And everyone was trying to work out who this actor is. It's himself. Yeah, it's got to be. He gets it? to play with himself. And I think that that is pure Bettany. If you've ever seen Paul Bettany in any other interviews, you know he's got a wicked sense of humor. And this was him just having a joke at the audience, expect, like fan expectations. And he's probably been sat back laughing with people trying to work out who's <laughs> going to cameo, <laughs> knowing that no one would have worked it out until that stinger. Yeah, I, absolutely. I've, 
I've seen people comment that this episode didn't really move the story forward. And I think those people are missing the point. It wasn't about moving the story forward. It was about getting us inside Wanda's head so that we can finally realise, yes, she was behind this all along, but this is why. We need to understand every bit of trauma that has led up to her needing to create a whole new world for herself. The cast have been uniformly fabulous in, in this and... There was the one sequence, and it, and it broke me, I'll be honest, and that's when Vision at the Avengers compound comes in to speak to Wanda, and they're watching, I think it was Malcolm in the Middle, uh, yeah. and, and Vision gives this great speech about what grief is. Um, uh, and if anything, that's what the series has been about. You know, despite, this, and this has been probably more key than any of the series I've watched in the last few years, where fan speculation has run wild and rampant around it. But everything has been... On display right from the start, we knew if you, you think about it that Agatha was it was Agatha all along that yeah. this that it was Wanda all along who created this. So all the talk about Mephisto or anything else, it's all been there on the screen. So I think it's one of those where fans are clearly going to be disappointed because they they've written their own version of it. But it is it's been a, it's been a program about what grief can do and what grief means to to a relationship and, and the way that it can change the rest of your life. Uh, some very cute little moments, I thought, you know, them watching watching the TV as a family, because, hey, that's what families do. They sit around and watch TV. So, again, very, very meta. There's been some speculation about the Mary Tyler Moore episode, because nothing in the Marvel Universe is ever there by chance. That that particular episode of the Dick Van Dyke show uh, was them dreaming about an alien invasion. Um, where all their neighbours had been taken over. Maybe, maybe at a push, it could be, uh, you know, foreshadowing secret invasion. You never know. But it, it was just such a, a beautifully well-crafted episode. And we got to see, we got to see uh, Wanda become Scarlet Witch because she's never been called that. And it was, uh, again, yeah. it's a throwback to an early episode that she didn't have a non-diplume. Yep. So we've got the final episode landing this Friday. And I, uh, it's the first thing I do every Friday morning. I wake up and I put on Disney Plus and I watch the latest episode. One, to avoid all the spoilers that are inevitably already seeping out online. But two, because I need to, because I, I look forward to this and I'm going to miss it after this week. Next week, we will talk about our feelings of the series as a whole and whether, the, whether it stuck the landing. But as it stands, we've been impressed throughout this series. Speaking of final episodes, did you see the final episode of The Stand that finally landed in the UK this week? No, I haven't. You know what? I've, I've really started. I started on a high with The Stand and I sort of drifted away from it. I need to get back into it. Did, did, it, um, did it do a, a Division hopeful ending where we think, yay, everything worked? Or did it do, uh, I just did more than the book? Um, you can tell that King wrote the final episode. It, it takes the, because he had his two different versions of the ending from the two different versions of the book that got released, and they're both in there. And there's also an extra element thing. I think that it worked really well as a coda to the whole story. Oh, I good. think that it is a great ending. Whilst the, the series itself has been uneven at times and not quite been what it could have been. The series that we'd I think, hoped. I think it stuck the ending quite well. I think we're still waiting to see the definitive version of The Stand represented on screen. But... Overall, it's been a pretty good season. Excellent. Other things to watch on streaming. There's two things coming up on streaming this week, which I've got my eye on. One is Bob Zemeckis' version of The Witches, which I know had a very mixed response. But you know what? I do like Roald Dahl, and I'm very interested to see. Including by myself, if you remember. My review for it wasn't the best review. But going yep. with your eyes open, Andy, it's, it's you know, this is what critics are for, <laughs> to be ignored. And then there's the Coming to America which lands on Amazon this week. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to this. Yeah, I, we, were, we were very negative about this when it was in production, when it was on its way. And then I saw the trailer about a week ago and I found myself chuckling and I found myself remembering how much I enjoyed coming to America. So let's see whether this sequel sticks it. Let's see whether it, it was worth coming back to all these decades later. Coming to America, that's going to be my main review next week. And that's it for this week. But before we go, I will give you our favourite things. Things that we've been watching, uh, reading, eating, playing. Andy, what's your neat thing? 
Now, before I talk about my actual neat thing, I just want to quickly mention that any PlayStation owners can get Ratchet and Clank for free right now on the PlayStation Store. It's completely free. You don't need to be a PS Plus user. Grab it. It's free for this month as part of their gameplay kind of thing that they're doing. That's not my neat thing, even though it is quite neat. My neat thing, one of my birthday presents this week was the box set of all four seasons of one of my childhood favourites on DVD, and that is the Transformers animated series. And the first thing I did once I opened it is I slammed the first disc into my drive yesterday, and by the end of yesterday, I'd watched 14 episodes of Transformers the animated series. I thought you were about to say you slammed it into your uh, into your player, and it transformed into a robot. But I oh, guess if just... it had done, that would have just been perfection. <laughs> but it's been ages since I last saw I mean, I think I last saw the Transformers animated series back in the 90s. I've not watched them since. And I was worried going to watch them that maybe they weren't as good as I remembered. But you know what? They are. They are still great animation stories. They are far better than those Michael Bay films ever gave us. And I'm completely drawn into the whole mythology of the battle between the Autobots and Decepticons once more. The more recent animated shows have been great, but I still think this original one is the one that really has the fun, the energy, the heart. Or should I say, the energy on, not the energy. Absolutely lovely. Uh, One of my best birthday presents of all time. I think the last time I was this excited for a birthday present was when my mum got me the animated movie on Blu-ray a few years ago. So um, you can see a theme here. (laughs) If you want to make me happy, get me something Transformers. Okay, my neat thing is, thanks to Disney+, Plus, I get to see the final season of the Guillermo del Toro uh, series, The Strain. Did you ever watch The Strain, Andy? I didn't, but I've actually added this into my watch list on Disney Plus after going through to see what new things were in there because I always wanted to get round to watching it. Well, it was based on uh, a novel trilogy by Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan and appeared on, I think it was either Channel 5 or Channel 4 in the UK. And it was a great series, a really well done, a brand new take on, 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 on uh, the vampire mythos. Good cast, great production values, very reminiscent in style to Del Toro's own Blade Two. To be perfectly honest, so it's very it's, it's very squidgy as one would imagine, uh, and has a certain amount of style to it. I never knew there was a final season, and thankfully, down to the stars uh, part of Disney Plus, they've managed to run the uh, run the final and fourth season, and it's such a great series. So if you've not had a chance to watch it, watch it from the beginning. And that's Guillermo del Toro's The Strain. And it's just about scary enough for a good night in. And I'll let you know what I thought when it gets to the final episode. But I am slamming it right now. Well, we'll be back next week with the film file. Uh, So have a good week, Andy. And you, man. But before you go, never rat on your friends. And always keep your mouth shut. (laughs) 